In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We will study today chapter 5 from the Gospel of Saint Matthew. Let me give you introduction about this chapter. This chapter actually is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mountain. Sermon on the Mountain is recorded in three chapters, chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 from the Gospel of Saint Matthew. The theme of the sermon is the Kingdom of Heaven, Kingdom of Heaven. So in this sermon, the Lord will start by the characteristics of those in the Kingdom those who will inherit and are living in the kingdom of heaven. And also he will discuss our relationship with the world. So as the kingdom of heaven, uh, it is our home, our citizenship is heavenly. But here we are ambassadors in the world. So what are the char our characteristics as heavenly living here on earth? And what's our relationship with others as ambassadors of Christ here. Uh, and the theme of the sermon, as I told you, Kingdom of Heaven, as it is clear from many verses, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, uh, verse 10, 19 and 20, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, uh, and verse 33, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. All these verses are about the kingdom of heaven. The characteristic of those in the kingdom of heaven are uh, explained in what we call it the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes describe the character and the blessedness of those who would be citizen of the kingdom. Beatitude means those who are blessed, because there are many, nine actually, blessedness. Blessed are those, blessed are those. So there are nine of them. And also, our relationship with the world was explained when the Lord said, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. So as ambassadors, here on earth, we are salt of the earth and light of the world. After this, actually, the Lord clarified his relationship with the law, law of Moses, because he was accused that he came to destroy the law. And his teaching was different than the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the Lord Jesus Christ actually explained that here he is not destroying the law but fulfilling the law and also he stressed that our righteousness should surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and I will explain this because the righteousness was based on the outward righteousness but our righteousness should start from within inward righteousness uh, rather than outward righteousness. And the Lord started to explain 
how he fulfilled the law by he made a series of contrast between the oral interpretation of the law and what he is expecting from us. When he said, you have heard that it was said to them, for example, thou shall not murder, but I say to you. So here the Lord is explaining how he came to fulfill the law and he is not expecting from, he is not expecting from us to keep the outward form of the law, but actually the spirit of the law and the inner meaning of the law. Uh, the Gospel of St. Matthew has five major homilies by the Lord Jesus Christ, five major sermons. So the Sermon on the Mountain is the first. And as I told you, it takes three chapters, five, six, and seven. The second homily, when the Lord actually sent the disciple in Matthew chapter 10, from verse 5 to 11, verse 1. The third homily is the parables in Matthew chapter 13. The fourth homily about the church in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 to 19, verse 1. And the uh, last homily, the eschatological homily about the end of the world from Matthew 24, verse 1 to 26, verse 1. And the word eschatology from uh, Greek word, eschatos means uttermost or end. Logos means word or discourse. So eschatology is the branch of theology about the end of the world. Eschatology about the end of the world. Uh, also, uh, how the Lord fulfilled the law. He said, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. The law of Moses is considered the old covenant. God made a covenant with us. But this old covenant was made based on your work, your effort. There was no grace. But the new covenant actually is made on the grace, based on the grace of God. As we read in John chapter 1, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth by Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in the old covenant, God gave us a commandment, love one another. But we don't have the grace to help me to forgive and to endure. That's why nobody was able to keep the law. But in the new covenant, God gave me the grace. So he did not give me only the commandment, but he gave me the power and the ability to fulfill the commandment. So the purpose of the law was actually to show me my weakness, to show me that I cannot uh, fulfill the law by my own effort. Like, you know, do you remember the miracle of catching many fish? How the, they tried all and labored all night, by, but they did not catch anything? So this was like the old covenant. We tried and tried and tried. But when Jesus came, you know, through his grace, they were able to catch many fish. 
So the law of Moses was like a tutor, a guide to teach us about holiness and to prepare them for the coming of Messiah. So he taught us about holiness and righteousness, but he did not give me the ability to be righteous. Clear? He taught me about righteousness, but he did not give me the ability to uh, be righteous. Uh, but when Jesus came, he came with a new covenant. And actually, Jeremiah prophesied about this new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, from 31 to 34. And in Hebrew chapter 8, St. Paul quotes these verses from Jeremiah. Uh, and, and this Jer uh, new covenant is based on the grace. And God actually is giving us blessings and grace uh, in the new covenant. So the Sermon on the Mountain begins with the introduction of this new law or new covenant. The beatitude, the blessings of the new covenant, the grace of the new covenant that we received with the Messiah. So it's clear here that the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry, his purpose is to do radical transformation of our hearts and our lives. Not transformation from outside, but radical transformation from within for our hearts and our lives. Uh, what are the sequence of events before the Sermon on the Mountain? If you read Luke chapter 6, you, you will find that the Lord actually spent the night in the mountain in prayer. Then in the morning, he chose the 12 disciples and appointed them. Then he came down to the plain with the 12 disciples. And he found a vast multitude. So he decided to teach them and to give them the Sermon on the Mountain. So he spent the whole night in prayer. Then he chose the 12 disciples. Then he descended with the disciples. And he found the multitude and in order to teach them so he ascended to the mountain and the mountain is thought to be the horns of Hatin this is about seven miles south, south of Kabrinaum near the sea of Galilee why he went up on the mountain and actually uh, this will make all the audience be able to listen him so uh, this actually will give, uh, will make the great gathering of people who came to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ will be able to hear him better. Uh, and this was actually the usual pusher of the public teacher among the Jews. They sit on the mountain and then they speak to the people. So verse 1, and seeing the multitude when he descended with the 12 disciples, he saw the multitude. He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. His disciples, the 12, came and sat around him. Then he opened his mouth 
and told them saying so he started to uh, preach to the multitude and from verse 3 we will find nine verses each one starts by the word the blessed this is what we call it the beatitudes so each of the nine beatitudes pronounces a blessing upon those who have certain characteristic so each characteristic deserve a blessedness blessedness more than happy happiness comes from earthly things but blessedness comes from God <coughs> that's why he did not say happy are he said blessed it is above and beyond just being happy but this happiness or this blessedness is not bestowed randomly there is a reason follow each beatitude for example blessed are the poor poor in spirit so here this blessedness is given to those who are poor in spirit but why for theirs is the kingdom of heaven for theirs is the kingdom of heaven so uh, let's uh, start this line beatitudes one by one number one blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven what does it mean poor in spirit if I say you are poor in money this means you don't have enough money so poor in spirit means you don't have enough righteousness you don't have enough virtues maybe you are surprised that the Lord is saying blessed are those who don't have enough virtues in their life poor in, in, in righteousness you know actually yes they are blessed you know why because when they discover their poverty then actually they will know they need God but if they are blinded and feel they are not poor in spirit they will never need God like when the disciples discovered that they are poor and they couldn't catch any fish here only they realized their need to God but if they trusted their ability and said no we are able to catch fish by ourselves they will never go to God why the you know the Lord Jesus Christ was able to save the tax collectors the adulterers the thief on the cross but the only group that was not saved by the Lord Jesus Christ is the scribes and the Pharisees the religious leaders of Israel why because they never realized that they were poor in spirit they thought they are not they are rich in spirit that's why they did not seek the Lord Jesus Christ so the first step in the journey to the kingdom of heaven to discover that you are poor and to know that you you, you cannot be righteous by yourself this actually will be the first step in your journey to the kingdom of heaven so poor in spirit those who are deeply sensible of their spiritual poverty 
and wretchedness. And why they are blessed? Because they are just one step between them and the kingdom. What is this step to surrender to the Lord? To ask the Lord to come and help them. To tell him, I, I am nothing, but I need your help. I will put all my trust in you. And then you can actually give me the kingdom of heaven. And Christ did not come to call righteous. He said, I did not come to call righteous. Righteous those who feel in whom they are rich in spirit. But he came to call actually uh, the, 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 those who are poor in spirit. I did not come to call righteous, but I came to call sinners. The whole do not need a physician, but the sick. And, and what's his ministry? He came to preach repentance and actually to move people's heart to mourn over their sins. That's why what is the second blessing? What is the second beatitude? When I discover my poverty, I would be happy? No. I will develop godly sorrow. That's why the following blessing, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me give you an example. Peter, before the crucifixion, he thought that he is rich in spirit. He told him, if everybody denied you, I will not deny you. I am rich in spirit. I am better than everybody else. But after he denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times, he discovered his poverty. He discovered that he is not better than the rest of the apostles. And when he discovered his poor in spirit, what did he do? He started to weep bitterly. That's why the second step, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who feel their spiritual poverty, actually they mourn after God. They mourn over their sins. They mourn because they are away from God. They mourn because their sins separated them, them from God. But there are two types of sorrow. You can read about these two types of sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. St. Paul said, Godly sorrow produces repentance, leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. We have Peter and Judas. Both of them became sorrowful. But Peter, his sorrow was godly sorrow, led to repentance. But Judas, because he lost hope in God, so he went and killed himself. So the sorrow of the, sorrow of the world produces death like Judas Iscariot versus Peter or the prodigal son when he discovered his poverty, he returned back to his father's house. And God actually is the comforter. As he said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. In, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, he told us, come to me, you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Rest, I will give you peace and comfort. 
We have the Holy Spirit, and one of the titles of the Holy Spirit is the Comforter. And the Holy Spirit will sustain us here. And also in heaven, God actually will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So comfort will be here and in the life to come. So the first two beatitude deal with how we see ourselves as poor and also we mourn over our sins, how we approach God. Then actually, a person who discovered his poverty and he start to mourn over his sin, do you think he will be arrogant? No, actually, he will be humble. He will be meek. That's why the third one, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When I discover my poverty, I will not feel that I am better than others. So when I deal with others, I deal with them with meekness and with humbleness. So the third one is how to deal with others. What's meekness? Meekness is patience in reception of injuries. When I got hurt or injured, I will endure it with patience. It is gentleness. It is the opposite of sudden anger and malice. A meek person is opposite to those who are proud and arrogant. Meekness makes a person peaceful from within. And when I say meek or gentle, this doesn't mean we are weak. No, we are strong. Children of God are strong. That's why meekness and gentleness should not be mistaken with weakness. But what does it mean to inherit the earth? Usually people love the gentle and the meek. So these people will be loved with everybody, as if actually they inherited the whole earth. But actually, the word earth or land in, in the Old Testament, it was used by the prophet to refer to the promised land, land of Canaan. So when the Lord here, uh, he said they shall inherit the earth or they shall inherit the land, he's not speaking about here, but speaking about inheriting the promised land, the heavenly land. It is the, uh, the inheritance of the uh, kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. So, here we can say inherit the earth. It is reference to the Messiah's kingdom. And the promised land is just a symbol, a type of the kingdom of the Messiah. When I discover my poverty and when I mourn over my sin and acquire a gentle and meek heart, I will not be ashamed to ask for righteousness. The arrogant, they will not ask for anything because they believe 
that they can do it by themselves. It takes meekness to say, I'm hungry and thirsty. That's why the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Lord, I am poor. I have no righteousness, but I'm hungry and thirsty for your righteousness. And you will fill me. And actually, you will bestow upon me your own righteousness. Why the Lord used the word hunger and thirst? Because these two words are expressive of strong desire. My desire to his righteousness is very strong, like a hungry person or a thirsty person. Uh, so no word would better express this strong desire than the word hunger and thirst. Uh, and actually, nothing uh, will, will, will thirst, will, will, will quench this thirst or satisfy this hunger except the righteousness of God. But this righteousness uh, will be given to those who approach God. Righteousness means I will be cleansed from my sins. This righteousness. But in order actually to be cleansed from my sins and for God to have mercy upon me, I need also to forgive others their sins and their debts. That's why the following beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I cannot ask God to forgive me my sins and be merciful on me, while me myself, I don't forgive others and I'm not merciful over others. That's why we need to show mercy to others in order to get mercy from God and when we get mercy from God, he forgives our sins and we will get his righteousness. So merciful means those who instead of resenting injury, when somebody hurt me or injured me, I am ready to forgive. And because I am ready to forgive, I will, sh I will obtain the divine mercy and I will be forgiven and actually I will get the righteousness of God. And in the Lord's Prayer, the fifth petition in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When we obtain the righteousness of God, then this righteousness is not external righteousness, but internal so my heart will be clean, my heart will be pure, my heart will be righteous. That's why the following one, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the word pure means those whose mind, motives, and principles are pure. They don't have hidden agenda. Who seek not only to have external actions correct but who desire to be holy in heart we need actually to examine our motives our motives should be pure and clean and righteous
Because man, as, as we read in the uh, first Samuel, when Samuel the prophet was choosing David the prophet, God told him, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And those who are pure in heart, they shall see God. They shall see him with, not with these eyes in a physical way, but by spiritual vision, by faith. Because in the pure heart, the Lord will dwell and his presence will be recognized for they shall be for they shall see God and God actually is the king of peace so his children those who have God in their heart will be peacemaker like their heavenly father that's why the following beatitude verse 9 blessed are the peacemaker for they shall be called sons of God so the children of God in the name of, of the Lord, the Prince of Peace and the King of Peace, will go forth to proclaim peace and goodwill among men. Christ made peace. He was a peacemaker. Even, it's interesting, during the time of the trial, when Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, you read that there was enmity between Herod and Pilate. But since this time, they became friends. So even the Lord Jesus Christ was able to make peace between Pilate and Herod. Both of them judged him. And all those who promote peace and are peacemakers are like him. So they are worthy to be called his children, the children of God. When you acquire this righteousness, you know this righteousness is very valuable for you. That's why you will not compromise it for any reason. Even if you are persecuted, you will not compromise this righteousness. That's why the following one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first one, there's, blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the, the start of the journey to the kingdom of heaven. And this is the last one, the end of the journey toward the kingdom of heaven. You are now, in the first one, they are poor, they don't have righteousness. But the last one, they acquire this righteousness as free gift from God. And now after they get it, actually they will do they will not compromise it at all. They will accept any suffering, any persecution, because they know this righteousness will qualify them for the kingdom of heaven. That's why they will be persecuted. Uh, here the Lord did not, did not say, blessed are the persecuted for their misbehavior or misdeeds, but they are persecuted because of the righteousness. Because they are Christian. And, and God did not promise us that if we live faithfully and righteously, we will not suffer any troubles. Actually, he, he told us exactly the opposite. The road is narrow. And when we become righteous, we will face many suffering. So, uh, when we, we become true Christian, 
Others will persecute us and they will revile us. But this we should accept it with joy because we will receive the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven. And if we are his children, as we read in verse 8, then he will defend us. We are his children. Uh, verse 9, called sons of God, so Christ will defend us. That's why verse 11, it's not considered a new beatitude, but it is a repetition of blessed uh, uh, are those who are persecuted. So the Lord said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. All kinds of evil falsely for my sake. Why you are blessed? Because these shall have the kingdom. Uh, I'm sure the martyrs, at the moment of their martyrdom, they remembered these verses. Blessed are those, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And these words, I'm sure, supported and encouraged them during the time of martyrdom. Uh, what kingdom? For this is the kingdom of heaven. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom of glory. It is the in eternal inheritance that will inherit after the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The way, uh, when he said, and say all kinds of evil against you, means they will call you by evil and condescending names. They will mock you because you are Christian. So the persecution mentioned in verse 10 and verse 11 comprehend all outward acts of violence against the Christian. All acts of violence against Christian. Uh, it, in, it include legal persecution, public accusation. Uh, and they did this with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They called the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a Samaritan and had a devil in John chapter 8. And they said about him, he is out of his mind, he's crazy, he's mad in John chapter 10. And actually they reviled and mocked him on the cross as we read in Matthew chapter 27. But let us learn from the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile again, as St. Peter told us. When they reviled him, he did not actually repay them by reviling. And also, when we are reviled, we should bless. As St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, when we are reviled, we should bless. We should imitate his example and follow his role model and to be willing to suffer for his sake. The Lord in, in verse 12 told us, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
So this persecution started with the Prophet and now continues with the Christian. And why we rejoice? Because of the reward. We will receive the crown of martyrdom. And it is said, the church father told us, the crown of the martyrdom is, uh, martyrdom is the brightest crown in heaven. So there is no other uh, uh, level higher than the martyrs. That's why many of the early Christians sought to become martyrs. And that's why they threw themselves in the way of their persecutor that they might be put to death and receive the crown of martyrdom. And that's what the, what the Lord said, great is your reward in heaven. When the Lord said they persecuted the prophets, yes, they persecuted the prophet. Isaiah, it is said to have been sought apart. Jeremiah was thrown into a dungeon and threatened with death. Elijah was hunted by Ahab and Jezebel. So they persecuted all the, uh, the prophets. Then from verse 13, after the Lord explained our characteristic, he told us what's our relationship with the world as ambassadors. He told us, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Why salt? Because salt preserves from corruption. And we the Christian preserve the world from general corruption. And if the salt itself lost its flavor, then actually the salt is worthless. It lost its quality. It lost its ability to preserve. It's not a preservative anymore. So it is fit only to be cast out and trodden under foot. Then in verse 14, he told us, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. The Lord said about himself also that he is the light of the world. So what is the difference between being he is the light and we are the light? He is like the sun, but we are like the moon. The moon doesn't have light in itself, but the moon reflects the light of the sun. So we reflect the light of Christ on others. So there are many verses in the Bible about Jesus is the, is the light. Like John chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 9, chapter 3, verse 19, chapter 8, verse 12, chapter 9, verse 5, etc. But when actually God abides in us, we will shine with his light upon the world. We will reflect the light of Christ upon the world. The doctrine that he taught us will be the means of diffusing this light of life throughout the universe. When we teach us about Christ, that's how we are reflecting the light, the light of his teaching. 
And when we call people to salvation and to accept the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's why reflecting his light on the world. In the past, in the old days, cities were placed on hills for the sake of defense, so nobody can attack them. And such cities on the hills can be seen from afar. That's why the Lord said, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. The church also should be like a city on a hill. The light of the church should actually uh, be reflected to the whole world and the churches as the assembly of the believers. Then the Lord, verse 15, he said, Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lamp stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. It is foolishness to light a lamp and put it under a basket. So, the Lord is saying to us, if we are enlightened, then it is our responsibility to diffuse this light to others and make others benefit from this light. I cannot hide this light because, because if I hide this light as if I am putting this light under a basket. When you lit a candle, you don't conceal the light, but you place it where it may be of use. The same way the sun is lighted up in the firmament of heaven to diffuse light and heat freely to every inhabitant on earth. That's why we should give light to everybody in the whole world. Every follower of Christ should diffuse the light of heavenly knowledge and the warmth of the divine love through the whole circle of their acquaintances. So you cannot hide your talent. You cannot hide the light of Christ. You need actually, as the Lord said in verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You are doing this not for, on your, for your own glory, but for the glory of God. Christ is the light, is the true light. And we only just we are reflecting his light when we walk in his light. And when we, give, when we give forth his light, it will honor God. Our faith, our religion, our virtues cannot be concealed. Because if it does not manifest in our life as if it does not exist, if our Christianity is not clear and manifested in our life, then as if it doesn't exist. If we hide our Christian knowledge, if we hide our Christian experience, that's actually we are betraying God and betraying His trust in us. And we are making our life useless. God entrusted us with this light to diffuse it. Let your light so shine before men. So when we have good actions, good virtues, and these actions will be seen, they will lead people to honor God. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father 
in heaven. The teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ so far was opposed to the teaching of the scribe and Pharisees. And some people start to doubt and some people start to accuse him that because his teaching is different than the teaching of the scribe and Pharisees, so he is coming to destroy the law, the law. So the Lord Jesus Christ, it was important for him as he enters his work and starts his ministry to state that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. As he said in verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. To fulfill means to complete its purpose, to complete its goal, because he was the end of the law. He was the end of the law. Verse 18. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The word assuredly, I say to you, or verily, I say to you, this formula occurs 30 times in the Gospel of Matthew. 30 times the Lord used, verily I say to you, or assuredly I say to you. The Lord is teaching us that all visible things are unstable. This heaven, which we see and so glorious, and the earth in which we inhabit and we love, shall pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. Because whatever we see is temporal and for a time. But the things which are not seen are eternal. So he said, till heaven and earth pass away, but one jot or tittle will not pass from the law. Jot means the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Tittle a simple turn by which one letter is distinguished from another. You know when you write two letters together and then actually you connect them with a simple turn? This is the tittle. Tittle. And jot is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Till all is fulfilled, till I will fulfill the law. So till here implies that after the great events of Christ's life, after he established his kingdom, and, and, and after he fulfilled the whole law in himself, then the old dispensation, uh, the old covenant, which is a covenant of letter, not of spirit, a covenant of yoke, of bondage, a, a system of type and shadow, it is a symbol of the new covenant. This will pass away. So the word till means until I, I establish the new covenant, then here only the old covenant will pass away. And many verses in the New Testament 
confirming that the old covenant passed away, as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 15, Colossians chapter 2 verse 14, Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13. The Lord said in Hebrews chapter 8, St. Paul said, if the old one, the old covenant was helpful, then there was no need for a new one. But the fact that the Lord established a new one, then the old one is vanished, is vanished. So till all is fulfilled, this means till I fulfill the whole law in myself. So, the letter of the law is vanished. For example, now we don't keep circumcision. We don't keep the sacrifices. We don't keep the purification. But the spirit and the substance of the law, because the law can be summarized in love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The spirit and the substance of the law will continue forever. That's why he said heaven and earth will pass away. And circumcision, now we don't keep it, but we keep baptism, which is the fulfillment of circumcision. We don't keep the sacrifices, but we have the communion, which is the fulfillment of the sacrifices. Then verse 19 is one of the difficult verses, uh, but let me try to understand it together. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, the commands of the law, and teaches men so, to teach men to, to break this commandment, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, actually, they used to make a distinction between whiter matters of the law and lighter matter of the law. So they classified the law into major commandment and lesser commandment. Uh, that's why the Lord said, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, and it is clear in the question of the lawyer to the Lord Jesus Christ when he asked him, what is the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22? So the Lord said, those who will break, break means they will say you don't keep this, you don't need to keep this commandment. So breaking doesn't mean here that I am breaking it out of weakness. But break means I am teaching the people you don't need to keep this commandment because it is a small commandment. It is one of the least commandment, the lesser commandment. So the Lord said, this person who is not keeping this commandment because he understands and interprets that it is not important and teaches the people so, he will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. The word the least in the kingdom of heaven is what is difficult in this verse. The biblical scholars uh, have different interpretation of 
least in the kingdom of heaven. Some of them said least in the kingdom of heaven means, yes, they may go to heaven, but they will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. They will not be glorified and honored like martyrs, like confessors, like saints. But most of the biblical scholars said no. The least means they are not recognized in the kingdom of heaven at all. They will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. They will not have place in the kingdom of heaven at all. So, but the rest of the verse he said, but whoever does and teaches them, so to keep the law and to teach the law, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here the Lord shows that the spirit of obedience, when we obey the law, even if we don't understand it, we will not make distinction. So I will obey all the commandments. And as St. James said, who breaks one commandment is guilty of the whole law. Uh, verse 20 he said for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven what is the righteousness of the scribe and Pharisees it is outward righteousness to keep the outward form of the law but with no change in the heart so the righteousness of the scribe and Pharisees consisted in outward observances, ceremonial and traditional. But the Lord actually wants us to keep the law within our heart. The scribe and Pharisees claimed to be teachers, an example of righteousness, but they lacked the humble spirit of true obedience to the law. So they will be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. Least in the kingdom of heaven means they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, according to the most of the biblical scholars. So our righteousness, if it is to contrast the outward and the former righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisees, then our, righteous should, our righteousness should be inward, vital, spiritual. That is how our righteousness will exceed the righteousness. Without a righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees, we cannot be member of the kingdom of heaven. And that's why if they will be considered the least, then this means they will not enter the kingdom of heaven because if our righteousness does not exceed the righteousness we will not enter the kingdom of heaven as the Lord said in verse 20 uh, so from verse 21 the Lord will start explaining how bitter righteousness will be by working on the inside, not outside. Uh, 
And now he is giving a new dimension to the law, the inward dimension of the law. Now the law will take a new and deeper and more spiritual shape and meaning. So he will speak about some of the Ten Commandments. Verse 21, you have heard, heard where in the Ten Commandments, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. That is one of the Ten Commandments. But now the Lord Jesus Christ will modify it because he is the giver of the law. And since he is the giver of, of the law, he will have the right to modify it. And, and you see here how he is speaking with authority. Nobody can modify the law except the lawgiver. That's why he was speaking with authority. He is modifying the law, not as the scribes. Now he is explaining the, the deep meaning of this. Uh, what makes a person kill his brother? What makes a person a murderer? It is anger. That's why he forbids the anger and the reproachful words that precede the murder. So if we avoid the anger and reviling, we will never end by, uh, by being murderers. So he said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. Uh, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother, because anger leads to murder, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raqqa, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. So, here the Lord Jesus Christ places the murderous heart on a level of actual murder. You don't have to kill person literally, but you can kill him in your heart. The word raqa from Hebrew word raq, which means empty. So if you say to your brother raqa, means you tell him uh, empty-minded, worthless. Vain. He will be in danger of counsel. Counsel, he's referring to the Sanhedrin, which is the highest court of Israel. It has 72 members. So he will stand before the Sanhedrin if you say to your brother Raqqa. And if you say you fool, foolish one, then actually he will be in danger of hellfire. Hellfire in Greek language is Gehenna or Gehennam. Gehenna actually is Geh in Hebrew means valley. Hennam, there is a valley called Hennom. So valley of Hennom is Gehennom, Gehennam, Gehenna. And this valley is located south of Jerusalem. And in this valley, the Canaanites used to burn uh, human sacrifices 
to their idol Muluk. And after the return of the Jews from captivity, they consider this place a defiled place because human sacrifices with over there. That's why the trash and the waste of the city was thrown and burned there. So there was a continuous fire. And because of the trash, there was also warm. So the name of Gehannum with the fire and with the warm is given or applied to the place of the future, future punishment, the eternal punishment. That's, that's the origin of the word Gehannam, Gehannum. Uh, verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, if you are angry with your brother, and now you are going to worship. The Pharisees, their intent only external act of worship. So it's okay to come and worship even if there is something in your heart against your brother or brother has something against you. But now actually the Lord is telling us, no, if your brother has something against you, you, not, you, you need to look into the internal state of your mind. The Pharisees didn't do this. And that's the big difference between their righteousness and our righteousness. So the Lord is teaching us like a different doctrine or a deeper doctrine. He wants us to examine ourselves internally. Uh, so the Lord is telling us to have our heart cleansed from within before we perform the external worship. And he told us, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So we need actually to be reconciled before worship. Why? Because God will not accept our offering, our prayer, our worship, if we are not reconciled. That's why we must use all means to reconcile. Like acknowledging the offense. I acknowledge what I did wrong. And I ask for forgiveness. As if the Lord is saying, these acts of love and friendship are preferable before uh, uh, two sacrifices. So before you worship, you need to go and be reconciled. If you are guilty of anything wrong toward your brother, you cannot offer an acceptable worship to God. So go and be reconciled first. Verse 25 and 26, which will be the last verses in our Bible study today, and we will finish after 26. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. 
Assuredly I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. The literal interpretation of this verse that the debtor was cast into prison and was held until the debt was paid. And if you don't pay the debt, then the debtor will remain in prison until he dies. So the Lord told us, try to reconcile with your brother before you are thrown in prison and maybe you'll spend the rest of your life there. So what is the spiritual meaning of this verse? The Lord also warning us to make everything right before it is too late, before we die and we stand before the just judge. We need to correct everything. Before the just judgment and before we die, there is a chance. But after we die, there is nothing except payment. Payment. St. Augustine, he said, the adversary here is God. When we sin against God, we make him like our adversary. So as if the Lord say, agree with God, with your adversary quickly. Because when you sin against him, while you are on the way with him, while you are still alive on earth, lest if you die without repentance, the adversary will deliver to the judge. Now Jesus is not our adversary, but will be our judge. And the judge will hand you over to the officer, the angels, and you will be thrown into prison, into the fire of hell. As shortly I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. But nobody will be able to pay there. That's why nobody will get out of the hell. These verses are uh, interpreted by the Catholic as purgatory. But it has nothing to do with purgatory, because nothing can pay our debts except the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to say that suffering will pay for our debts, then Jesus died for no reason. So we cannot interpret these verses as reference to purgatory. Uh, let me read quotes from St. Augustine. I explained to you, but let me read uh, exactly what he said. He said, we are enjoined to yield to God. Yield to your adversary, yield to God, and to be well disposed toward him, in order that we may be reconciled to him while here on earth, from whom by sinning we have turned it away. When we sin, we turn away, so that he can be called our adversary. Whoever, therefore, while in this way, here on earth, in this life, shall not have been reconciled to God by the death of his son, will be delivered to the judge by him. The judge is Christ, for the father judges no man, but has delivered all judgment to the son. His law, the law of God and divine scripture, which has been given us for this life, that it may be with us in the way, which we must not contradict, lest it deliver us to the judge, to Jesus, in the judgment day, but which we ought 
to submit to quickly. So we need to submit to the law and the scripture quickly before even I offer any sacrifice. Because any sacrifice, any offering will not be accepted unless I am in peace with others. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.